Well, what are we to make of being slain in the Spirit? If you're new to church, um, in some pockets of Christianity, uh, some fall on the floor, still as stone, and call it being slain in the Spirit. Don't worry, that's not going to happen today. What are we to make of speaking in tongues? If you're new to church, this is where folks speak at times in some unintelligible way as a form of worship or prayer. What are we to make of uncontrollable laughter, gold teeth fillings, prophetic visions, faith healers? Or or another question, should we pray for miracles? Should we pray for healing? Do those types of things even happen today? All of these questions, in some way or another, connect to spiritual gifts. Over the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians, Paul's taught us a lot about the proper use of spiritual gifts. Much has been said. Hopefully you've been helped. But I bet there's lots of questions in your mind. And if you haven't been here, but yet you hear what I'm talking about, there may be questions already in your mind. So today, what I want to do is give you an overview of spiritual gifts. What are they? Are some not operating today, and if so, on what basis do we say that? And then, what the heck am I supposed to do with this information? What does it actually matter? And let me just tell you, my interest in this is not theoretical or merely intellectual. My interest in this is for the well-being of our church, the flourishing of our church. Jesus empowers and edifies his church through our spiritual gifts. So I want us and you to understand them and to grow in our zealous and loving exercise of them. So let's just start with a couple of introductory things. I want to invite you to look at the outline this morning. That kind of lets you know where I am and and where I'm going. That outline there. First off, gifts are spiritual, I mean supernatural, not natural. So your spiritual gift is not a natural inclination or a skill set that you have that God in turn makes useful for kingdom service once you become a Christian. So it's actually not the case. God doesn't take naturally winsome people and then give them the gift of evangelism because they're good salesmen or something. It's not like God gives those who are naturally servant-hearted, it's not like he looks at those and because they're naturally servant-hearted, he, he turns that into the gift of service. No, gifts are supernatural and they're given according to the sovereignty of the Spirit. So listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, 
to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You heard the language of gift in this passage. These things are gifts, so they're not natural abilities. And these things are given according to the sovereignty of the Spirit, not according to the inclination of the person. Now, just truth in advertising, some of them may seem more supernatural than others. Prophecy, tongues, miracles, those are clearly supernatural. But in truth, exhortation, service, administration, those are just as supernatural. God supernaturally equips you to bless his body. So that's number one. Gifts are supernatural, not natural. Number two, gifts are given to all. So gifts are not something for the special forces detachment of Christianity. Every Christian is actually gifted by the Spirit. To each, Paul says, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So by that we understand that each and every Christian is gifted by the Spirit of God. And and another point to note, gifts are not a, a second work of grace that you must pursue. In some circles, Christians are encouraged to pursue the the baptism of the Spirit, which is where, according to this, uh, certain gifts are conferred, usually speaking in tongues. But this is not a right understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read one text. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, for in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. First of all, this is not water baptism here. This is spirit baptism. And and you hear there the universal experience of this. All Christians get this. We are all baptized into the body. We are all made to drink of the Spirit. Well, just ask yourself, when does this happen? When do we drink of the Spirit? When do we become a part of the body of Christ? When we repent and believe. So gifts are not a second work of grace. They are given to all at conversion. And they are given for a specific purpose. So believer in Jesus Christ, why do you have a spiritual gift? 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Peter 4, 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the grace of God. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You have a spiritual gift 
so that you can serve Christ's church. Your gifts are for the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ, to bless the body of Christ, to serve the body of Christ. And on this question, I just want to have a side note here. Let's say you have the gift of service. When you're just out or about in the world or in your job and you're serving people, is that you exercising your spiritual gift? I think I'd have to say yes and no. Yes, in that you're using something God's given you. No, in that gifts are explicitly intended for the church. And this is actually really important to point out because if you're sitting there thinking, man, I am using my administrative gifts out the wazoo to bless my company or this sports team. And God is pleased because I am using my gifts like mad. Is he pleased? Amen. Well, hold on, Reuben. Hold on. <laughs> He gave you that gift. He gave you that gift to bless his church, not to bless the bottom line or the little league. You see, Jesus loves his church, and he wants you to love his church, and he wants you to serve his church, and that's why he gifted you. And so if you're taking what he's given you and using it everywhere but the church, he's actually not pleased. Because he wants you to use it to bless his church. All right, one last point by way of introduction, unless Reuben gives me any more amens. Gifts should be evaluated by Scripture and not by experience. So here's what I mean. Some may say, hey, I know prophecy happens today. Or I know tongues happen today because I've seen it. Well, to that, I would say, I know what you're saying. I'm I'm hearing what you're saying. I believe what you're saying. You've seen something that you're calling prophecy, and you've seen something or experienced something that you're calling tongues. But how you experience, but how you understand what you experience, how you interpret what you experience, how you define your experience needs to be based on Scripture. So we need to let Scripture be the lens through which we understand our experience, not our experience be the lens through which we understand Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, so what I want to do now is I want to make the case that some of the gifts that we see listed in the New Testament are actually not operating right now. So in the big Christian world, there's two basic camps when it comes to the gifts. The continuationist camp, which basically says the gifts continue until Jesus comes back. Continuationist. They continue. And then there's the cessationist camp, which basically says, no, some gifts have ceased cessation. I'm arguing for a view of cessationism. So at this point, I just want to invite you to turn over your outline and check out the table that's on the back of that outline there. This shows you every spiritual gift passage in the New Testament. And what is it that you see at the very top, the first two 
lines there. The gifts of apostleship and prophecy. Let's just talk about those for just a minute. What is an apostle? An apostle is somebody who, number one, saw the risen Lord Jesus, and number two, was directly commissioned by Jesus to be a witness of his resurrection. Now, there is a more general definition of apostle, just a sent one, and in that sense, we're all apostles. We're all sent to testify of Jesus' resurrection. But narrowly defined, the apostles were those who saw the risen Lord Jesus and were commissioned by him, and they served a foundational role in the church. In fact, Ephesians 2 specifically says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Actually, I want you to hold on to that verse for just a second, that idea of a foundational role. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But first things first, there are no more apostles. That gift has ceased. By the way, most continuationists, almost all continuationists, believe that gift has ceased as well. So in this sense, everybody believes that some gifts aren't operating now. And just from a principled standpoint, if one gift has ceased, and this one clearly has, isn't it possible that other gifts may have ceased as well? Well, yeah. And I would argue that prophecy, too, has ceased. So apostleship has ceased, and I would argue that prophecy has ceased. First of all, what is prophecy? A prophet is somebody in the Old Testament. Just think about the Old Testament for a moment. A prophet in the Old Testament was someone who brought forth divine revelation to the people of God. Sometimes they were foretelling, speaking about something that would happen in the future. So other times, they were just forth-telling, speaking God's word authoritatively to his people in the moment. Either way, though, they were, they were revealing the very words of God, and that's why they often began their addresses with, what? Thus saith the Lord. Because they're speaking authoritatively on his behalf. And so, if in this category you might think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Amos or Obadiah, those are all Old Testament prophets. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, the question is, Does anything change? Now, here's the deal. Everybody's got to make some choices because nobody is actually claiming, either continuationists or cessationists, nobody is claiming that there are Jeremiah's running around declaring authoritatively and definitively the word of God. Nobody claims that. So what do continuationists claim? Well, they claim that the nature of prophecy changes when you turn the page from the Old to the New Testament. They would say it's no longer thus saith the Lord, but instead that the very nature of prophecy has changed such that it's fallible and mixed with error. And that's how they make sense of prophecy continuing, but clearly not being what you used to see. And if I could just take an aside for just a minute, in practice, in charismatic churches, if you've ever been a part of a charismatic church, 
prophecy in that setting is more what I would just call an impression. So have you ever felt burdened by the Lord to just share a word with somebody? Like, hey, I see that you are struggling, and I just want to tell you the Lord is going to get you through this. In most charismatic churches, that would be considered a prophecy. I just think it's a category error. I think it's an impression, not a prophecy. So the question we actually have to ask is this. Has the nature of prophecy changed? And what I would say is that the New Testament doesn't present prophecy as changing at all. In the New Testament, prophets are treated with the same reverence, the same weight, the same authority as they were in the Old Testament. As you look at the pages of the New Testament, prophets are men and women who speak authoritatively the word of God. Peter, quoting Joel 2, says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter quotes this as the spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and thus begins the New Testament church, and prophets are vital to reveal all that is going on in this massive transition between the Old Covenant and the New. Listen, the New Testament books were not yet written at this point in time. They did not have a written, thus saith the Lord. And so they needed a spoken, thus saith the Lord, to knew, to know what the Lord said. And this is the weight that you see ascribed to New Testament prophets. They're not saying, maybe. They're not saying, the Lord's laid it on my heart. No, they're speaking what God reveals to them. They speak on behalf of God. They are speaking the words of God. Paul says this, when you read this letter, Ephesians, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise through the gospel. You see, through the prophets, God reveals all that is going on in that shift change from the old covenant to the new. Which, by the way, is, is why their role is so important at the beginning of the New Testament church. And it's why the New Testament warns about the dangers of false prophets. But I do have a question for you. How do you tell if somebody's a false prophet? It's if their prophecy doesn't come true. But if prophecy is mixed with error and true prophets can get it wrong at times, as continuationists claim, how can you tell who's a false prophet? What I'm saying is this. You're like, BJ, what are you saying? Well, let me tell you what I'm saying. I'm saying it doesn't make sense to claim that New Testament prophecy has changed from Old Testament prophecy. New Testament prophecy is authoritative and divine revelation, and it was hugely important 
Ephesians 2.20 says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church by the fact that God revealed and communicated himself authoritatively through them. They said, thus saith the Lord. However, once the foundation of the building is laid, that work is done. They didn't continue. Why? Because now we have thus saith the Lord. Apostles and prophets were a foundational temporary gift to the church, speaking God's word to the church until such time as God's written word was complete. Does that make sense? So apostleship and prophecy are gifts that are no longer operating. They have ceased. Okay, so what about some others? How about, how about tongues and healing and, and miracles? Well, let's just think about tongues. I would argue that these gifts have, have likely ceased as well, although I am going to caveat that with a few points here in a minute. I want to talk about tongues first. Tongues, what are those? Well, they're the ability to speak in a language that you do not understand. You see this clearly in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit descends on the church. This is the birth of the New Testament church, by the way. And one way that God miraculously testifies to the truth of the gospel and that message and the redemptive historical shift change from the old to the new covenant is that he validates that message with this miracle of tongue speaking. And so what happens is that men and women speak in a language that they don't understand, but those who are there know that language, and they're like, what the heck? They're speaking my language even though they don't know my language. It's a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. By the way, it's also an understandable proclamation of the truth of the gospel. It's not just random vocalization of disjointed consonants or syllables. It is a language that someone somewhere can understand. And this definition of tongues holds steady throughout the pages of the New Testament. There are some who argue, based on 1 Corinthians 14, that tongues isn't only a language, but it can be ecstatic utterances. I don't have time to dissect that here, but I can say that nothing Paul says about tongues in 14, which Brad will cover next week, so I'll just dump that on him, necessitates a different definition of tongues. Nothing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 necessitates a different definition of tongues. So what is tongues? It's the ability to speak in a language that you do not understand, but someone somewhere can because it's a language. And then what is the purpose of tongues? This is important. Follow me. Number one, tongues were given to signify to a group or that a group had received the Spirit of God. Tongues were given to signify that a group of people had received the Spirit of God. That's why tongues accompany the conversion of the Samaritans. 
That's why tongues accompany the conversion of the Gentiles in the book of Acts. At the beginning of the church, guys, it was hard for a Jew to believe that Samaritans and Gentiles could be part of the people of God. And so God granted something miraculous to testify to that truth. And then two, tongues were given to miraculously testify to the truth of the gospel. Check in with me for just a second. Would you agree it's pretty powerful to hear the gospel being proclaimed in your language by somebody you know doesn't speak your language? Do you know what I'm saying? That's pretty impressive. And on this basis, I would argue that tongues are not operating right now. It is no longer necessary to testify that anyone can be a part of the people of God. That's an established theological reality now. Nobody's shocked that the Gentiles are included in the church. Almost every single one of you are Gentiles. And it's not shocking that you're a part. But it was in the first century. And so God granted tongues to demonstrate that we were at that point in time. Additionally, the church is no longer a baby fledgling band of brothers trying to, to get on and off the ground and thus helped by miraculous evidence to our truthfulness. The church is a worldwide reality. And praise God for that. Now, I just want to nuance one thing. Since I believe that one of the purposes of tongues is to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel when it's advancing in unknown territory, like it was in Acts... I believe it's possible that in cutting-edge missionary situations, God may grant the gift of tongues for the gospel to advance. I believe that's possible. But other than that, it just seems to me like tongues have ceased. And just historically, if you don't know this, this is helpful for you. Past about the year 300, you don't see tongues at all until the early 20th century in California in something called the Azusa Street Revivals. Just historically, tongues ceased from about 300 until the early 20th century in California. Does anything good come out of California? No. (laughs) And then I am compelled to tell you, that may have been a bad comment to say, but it, it it wasn't in my notes, but I'm a Texan, so it just... I am compelled to tell you this, one thing as well. The so-called tongues in the modern-day charismatic movement aren't the biblical gift of tongues. The biblical gift of tongues is a language. Modern-day tongues is not a language. It's a mix-mash of consonants and syllables that are thrown together in no language at all. So, if you're wondering... What do we make of tongues in the charismatic movement? Well, it's not the biblical gift of tongues. So what is it? Get ready. I don't know. (laughs) But I think we have to say that if someone is doing it, it's not necessary to conclude they're possessed or demonic. J.I. Packer, the very respectable theologian, may be correct in suggesting that it's a form of relaxation. He compares it 
not in a, in a negative way, not meaning to cause offense. He compares it to singing to oneself in the shower. It may just be a form of relaxation. It's not necessary to conclude that it's demonic. All right, so I believe the evidence points strongly towards this gift having ceased. What about healings and miracles? These have ceased as well. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that God doesn't heal people. Please don't say I said that because I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that miracles are not possible. Don't say that I said that because I'm not saying that either. Both are entirely possible and it is entirely appropriate to pray for God to heal someone as I did this morning in prayer time. I am saying that the gift of healing and the gift of miracles have ceased. In other words, God no longer gives certain people the ability to say, like Peter did to the lame man in Acts 3, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they rise up and walk. So just to put it very bluntly, Benny Hinn and the other so-called faith healers are a sham. Also, follow me here. Think about redemptive historical shift changes. When you look at Scripture, you're going to see the miraculous happen at significant shift changes when God is doing significant things. You see them during the time of Exodus, when God redeems his people and establishes his covenant with them. You see them in the transition between Elijah and Elisha when God establishes that he is speaking through Elisha now. You see them in the life of Jesus when God reveals that this is the divine son of man. And of course you see them in the early church when God is revealing the truthfulness of the gospel in mighty and miraculous ways. So you don't see them now. They're not needed now. God's desire is for the truthfulness of the gospel. Please grab a hold of this. God's desire is for the truth of the gospel to be testified to by the miraculous nature of transformed lives in the local church. That's how he reveals the power of the gospel and the truth of the gospel is by people's lives being changed. They were sinners, but now they're saints, and it's obvious because how they act and live and treat one another. So just a quick FAQ on a couple of things. Number one, how important is this? Actually, this is the only FAQ I have. If you're looking at the sermon outline, you're like, how is he going to get done before one? I'm a miracle worker. I will get there. How important is this? In other words, cessationism, this understanding that certain gifts have ceased, how important is this? Careful theologians articulate three basic levels of importance of certain doctrines. So there are first-tier issues. What are first-tier issues? First-tier issues are matters of primary importance. What does that mean? It means you can't be a Christian if you don't believe these things. Examples of this would be the deity and humanity of Christ. That's a first-tier issue. It's of primary importance. You're not a Christian if you don't believe those things. The Trinity is a first-tier issue. That salvation is by grace through faith alone is a first-tier issue. So if someone says they're a Christian but they don't believe those things, they're not a Christian and we don't have fellowship in the gospel. There are second-tier issues, though. 
Second tier issues are matters that are important that genuine Christians can disagree on, but it's best not to do church together. Let me just give you two examples. Number one, infant baptism. Seth Anderson, the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church, just a few miles north, he and I have hearty fellowship in the gospel, great appreciation for one another, but it's best if we don't pastor a church together because I am a Baptist and he is a Presbyterian. Thus, I believe that only those who repent and believe in the gospel should be saved. He believes that believers and their children, sorry, (laughs) I believe that only those who repent and believe should be baptized. He believes that Christians and their children should be baptized. We can have hearty fellowship in the gospel, but we shouldn't run a church together. I would argue that continuationism belongs in this category. Charismatic churches, charismatic Christians are Christians, but it's best that we do church separately. So here at RGC... We don't seek to practice so-called speaking in tongues or prophecy. If you were to come up to me and say, Pastor, I have a prophetic word for the people of God, I would tell you, just keep that prophetic word to yourself. It's okay. So first tier, second tier, and then third tier. Third tier issues are issues that Christians can disagree on and happily live life in the local church together. I would put end-time doctrine in this category. Things like, is Jesus returning before the tribulation, after the tribulation? Is there an actual seven-year tribulation, or is there not? Is there a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, or is there not? Those are third-tier issues. I think Christians should disagree lovingly, live life together in the context of the local church. All right. With that under our belt. I actually want to transition to the gifts that I believe are active in the church today and give you a brief overview of them and encourage us all in a few specific ways. So first of all, in the simplest analysis, according to 1 Peter 4, there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. 1 Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So at a fundamental level, there are gifts that are characterized by speaking, and there are gifts that are characterized by serving. And so one gift is evangelism. And this is back on this list if you're curious, but you don't have to look there. So one gift is evangelism. And now be clear, every Christian is called to be an evangelist. But God does gift certain Christians with particular effective ability to evangelize. I think Doug Parker had the gift of evangelism. I actually think the Janests have the gift of evangelism. I think others of you may have the gift of evangelism, but you actually haven't exercised your muscles enough with it for it to really become clear to others in the body. Another gift is the distinguishing of spirits. A distinguishing of spirits is a gift essentially where one is able to particularly discern what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. Those who have this gift know the scriptures well. 
and are thus particularly equipped to discern between right and wrong, truth and error. I frankly think a good portion of our elders have this gift. They can see through the noise and confusion, both in the intellectual and cultural trends of our day and in the issue in our people's lives in the congregation. Another gift is teaching. I would argue that Paul's word of wisdom and his word of knowledge in 1 Corinthians 12 is the gift of teaching. So God gives certain brothers and sisters particular giftings to teach the gospel. And I'm particularly grateful. I think many in our congregation have this gift. I think of the many men and women who teach our foundations classes. I think of the the men and women in our Awana program. And and by the way, if if it's not yet obvious, it will become obvious as you go. You may have more than one gift. Arguably, the apostles had all the gifts. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you only have one. You can have multiple. Yet another is exhortation. Brothers and sisters, we need exhorters. Exhorters are those who spur us on towards zeal in the fight of faith. Exhorters are those who who call us to greater service and sacrifice. Exhorters are like a high school basketball coach that they push us when we need it. They get behind us and they say, let's do this. Sometimes you just need encouragement. Hey, this is hard. I get it. Other times you need exhortation. Hey, this is hard, but you have got to push through this. And by the Spirit, you can. We need encouragers and we need exhorters. Help is yet another gift. Helps. This gift is so wonderfully broad. Deacons typically exemplify this gift in spades. Who do you know in our church that is, that is game to help with whatever and whenever, no matter the task, how can I be of help? Who comes to your mind? I personally think there are too many to name. There's the Lundbergs. There's Damien and Linda. There's the Bittners. There's James Powell. There's the Halls. There's the Hales. There's the McClymans. There's Johnny Stoughton, who two years ago just thought, you know what, I think the church needs another cajon player, so he began to learn how to play the cajon just to where he could jump up and join us. Dave did the same thing several years before that. Didn't know how to play the bass, just thought this would be helpful. So he exercised the gift of helps. I could name more. I think our church is full of people with the gift of helps and praise God for them. Yet another gift is leading or administration. As the name implies, these are those who lead. It is helpful but not necessary that a pastor have this gift. A pastor must have the gift of teaching, but it is helpful for a pastor to have this gift because one need in every church is godly and visionary leadership. But this doesn't mean that only a pastor has this gift. A brother or sister leading anything on in any way in the church 
must actually lead. And so I think of all the ladies who did so well in bringing our recent women's retreat to bear. I, I think about all of those who lead Bible studies one-to-one or in a group. I think of all those who lead Awana or home groups. Praise God for the gift of leadership. And then there's the gift of giving, which focuses on giving's one on the giving of one's wealth and substance to assist in others' need and to further the proclamation of the gospel. And if I could pause for just a second, all believers are called upon to give generously. So let me just briefly ask you and remind you and poke you if you're not. Are you giving generously and sacrificially to the Lord's work? Or are you doing what I would call token giving and just dropping a buck or two in the giving box in the back at some point in time and trusting that others will take care of the rest? All believers are called upon to give generously and sacrificially to the Lord's work. Is that taking place in your life? We don't talk about money very much at RGC, but I do want to remind you that God expects and calls you to give of your substance as an expression of worship and obedience. And I want to ask you, are you doing that? Consistently, generously, sacrificially. If you're not, I don't have beef with you, but the Lord does. I don't know what you give. I never will. But the Lord does. But let me also just say that God gifts certain people with uber levels of generosity and uber levels of ability, and they give in remarkable and wonderful ways. I don't know if you know this, but my seminary was paid for by one very generous brother who placed one phone call to me when I was about to go and said, by the way, I want you to know, seminary for you is covered. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I've, got a, I've got a job lined up. I got a plan. I'm going to be able to take care of it. He's like, no, 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 no. It's covered by me. I'm covering your seminary. How he got that money is a long and complicated story that I'll tell you some other time. But I believe this brother had the gift of healing. It was... Uh, uh. <laughs> Giving. Giving. Faith. The gift of faith. The gift of faith is not saving faith. Every believer has saving faith. This is faith to believe God for big things and to venture out in big ways. I think the Owens might demonstrate this gift. I sat down with them in their living room and they basically just said, we're going to move to Plattsburgh and God will provide because we believe he wants us to make a difference at Bread of Life Baptist Church. And I'm like, well, have you considered this and this and this and this and this? And they're like, yeah, we've considered some of those things but we're going to do it, and God's going to provide. Praise God. Praise God they did, and they are making a difference. Mercy. Those who have the gift of mercy have a special capacity to minister to those who are hurting. I think this is so necessary, and I think of the Larsons. When things were crazy with my dad in the fall, before I even knew how much of an impact him being here was going to have on my and my family's life, Eric was already tracking, calling, texting, saying to me, BJ, how you doing? I'm praying for you, and you're going to need help, and I want you to know we're here for you. I think of Cheryl Ziegler. 
Who do you know that just has a that just has a nose for the struggler? And they just reach out to the struggler. That's the gift of mercy. Praise God. Don't you see how important all these gifts are? Don't you see the wisdom of God in the distribution of many different gifts to many different people in this congregation so that we are built up and edified and the gospel goes forward? So I want you to reflect for just a moment about pursuing, using, and thinking about your gifts. Number one, remember, you are needed and you need others. You are needed, and you need others. In that text from last week, Paul said, the ear can't say to the eye, because I'm not you, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the ear, because I'm not you, I don't need you. We, the elbow needs the hand, needs the foot, needs the pinky, needs whatever this thing is. We all need each other. You are needed, and you need others. I also want to encourage you to pursue usefulness regardless of perceived giftedness. Pursue usefulness regardless of perceived giftedness. Don't think, am I an exhorter? If you're having a conversation with a brother or sister and you think a word of exhortation is needed, give it. Don't think, am I a gifted evangelist? If you're talking to someone who's lost as a goose in a snowstorm and an opportunity comes up to talk about Jesus, take it. Don't think, am I gifted with the gift of giving? Give. Don't think about giftedness. Think about usefulness and pursue usefulness. And God will make clear to you in time where giftedness is as you simply try to be useful in all of the different ways you can. And then I would also remind you that gifts are worthless without love. Gifts are worthless without love. Our desire in the exercise of our gifts should be to do so in love, in a way that builds up, edifies, and causes the gospel to go forward. And if I could put a bow on this just from a pastoral word standpoint, as your pastor, here's how I would want our church to be thinking about gifts. I would want to encourage you, grow in serving gifts and grow in speaking gifts. Grow in serving gifts by seeing needs and meeting needs. And then grow in speaking gifts by growing in discipleship and your understanding of theology and God's word. Hunger for it. And as you grow in an understanding of God's word, you will be equipped to speak God's word more confidently, robustly, and competently. So grow in both speaking and in serving. And if you're not a Christian... Let me just tell you, if you see something here that strikes you as supernatural, it's supposed to point you to the fact that Jesus Christ has died and risen and that through repentance and faith, people are changed. 
What you see here in a people who love and care for one another is not a bunch of great people. What you see is the evidence of the gospel in our midst. What you see is someone who's believed in Jesus and been forgiven and is now being transformed such that they live less for self and more for others. And to the degree you see usefulness, it's because they've been gifted by the Spirit to be useful in Christ's church. So if you want in on that, my encouragement to you is to consider the message of Jesus Christ, that he is a Savior who offers to save you from your sins, and by turning from your sin and trusting in him, you can be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you save us and you equip us. May you use us to magnify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.